Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're on a big old jet airliner and we're talking about the flight attendants from the madman era of commercial flight. I'm joined by Julia Cook, who's written a book called Come Fly the World, The Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am. Julia's book looks at the young women who were stewardesses with Pan Am in the 1960s and 1970s. Julia tells the stories of several American women who were the right height, right weight, and under 26 years of age to qualify for a job at Pan Am. From women's rights to the Vietnam War, Julia goes beyond trolley service to show the role played by these women as the world became a whole lot smaller. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed the book, and uh, I noticed that you have a family connection to Pan Am, so perhaps you can describe that to us. I do, yes. My father worked for Pan Am until I was about nine years old, which was when the company um, went bankrupt. Uh, he was not a pilot. He was an attorney. But um, both he and in particular, my mother, my mother was incredibly determined to squeeze every possible um, flight benefit that she could out of the airline. So uh, we traveled quite a lot when I was a child, um, usually on standby, always pretty spontaneously. Um, we would be packed for hot or cold um, and then go to the airport and find out where we were going once we saw what plane had four free seats on it. So it was um, it was quite a quite a way to grow up. But um but uh, I hadn't really thought very much about the airline until much, much, much later, about six or seven years ago, when I started, uh, I went to an event that the Pan Am Historical Foundation hosted and met a handful of uh, former stewardesses who I just, um, I was fascinated by. Right. So those former stewardesses, so in the book, you use their narratives. There's Lynn, Tori, Karen, and, and several others. Um how did you persuade them to tell their stories? It took very little persuasion, actually. Um, they were really eager to tell their stories for the most part. I noticed um, pretty early on in the research that these were women whose, uh, you know, they had been often asked about where they liked to shop or what capital had the best nightlife or what celebrities had been on their planes, kind of the more stereotyped sorts of, um, of conversations uh, or the things that people would would pretty freely associate with um, with what they thought of, with what pop culture tells us um, a stewardess of the jet age would have been interested in. But that's not what I was interested in. I was much more interested in um, their stories of war flights and refugees and the diplomacy that they um, enacted in flight. And I, I really sensed that um, not very many people had asked them about those experiences. Um, so, so really, it, it was not at all. Um, I didn't have to persuade them at all, really, once, once we started talking. Now, Pan Am had restrictions on stewardesses' weight, height, and age. So th these are actually news to me. Um, I'm guessing the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, the airline industry was a very male-dominated uh, industry. Yeah, it absolutely was. And and what's more, passengers were were um, 
largely male, the frequent passengers at least. Certainly women flew uh, with their families quite a bit and, and on their own as well. But um, men traveling for business uh, dominated the flight manifest as far as frequent flyers went. Um, so keep in mind that this was in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, the uh, prices were set by the government. They were regulated by, um, according to mileage, not uh, the companies couldn't set the prices and couldn't compete with one another via prices. So they competed via image. Um, they were they they were all in on trying to construct um, uh, an image that lured passengers onto their planes rather than anyone else's. So they spent a lot of money on branding. Um, they uh, spent a lot of they put a lot of effort into devising in-flight perks. So like menus that were designed by um, great restaurants around the world and um, and you know and the women. Uh, the stewardesses were another uh, selling point, especially for those um, male passengers. And you're absolutely right. The male-dominated corporate structures were um, all about uh, really exploiting the um, the women's uh, physicality and their um, looks in order to try to to um, distinguish themselves from other airlines. Yeah, in several places, you you uh, repeat the reasoning that male executives used for why uh, women of a certain age and a certain look were used. And reading it now in 2021, it's almost comical, but not quite really, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It was one of the things that um, was really uh, shocking to me, although not not shocking at all, um, to see how explicitly uh, the, the men at the helms of these companies would, would talk about um, you know, wanting to have young, uh, pleasing is the word that they used, women um, crewing these flights. Um, surely, yes, the sexism these days is a little more um, insidious than that. Right. Now, the, the Vietnam War. So this area of the book was um, pretty educational for me. Uh, and you write about Pan Am's involvement, flying troops in and out, and then also particularly near the end of the war, uh, a, a baby lift where orphans were evacuated. So all of this involvement was actually news to me. And it seems like what the stories you were telling there is you were showing a turning point, a turning point for the company, a turning point for America, and even a turning point for the flight attendants who were crewing these flights. Absolutely. The um, time period that I focused on was 1966 to 1975, which was actually the, the there were the years of the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, what, what I found so fascinating was that convergence, convergence of cultural change in so many different realms in the era. As you mentioned, um, the way that companies operated, um, the way that America uh, interacted with the rest of the world, um, in especially in terms of Vietnam. Um, there was the war and the anti-war protest movement as well. Um, and the, the flight attendants themselves, the stewardesses, um, the, the feminist movement, changes in what corporations could get away with as far as those sexist hiring practices go. There was also the civil rights movement that was changing um, the, the sorts of people that could apply for different jobs and, and expect to get hired. Um, black women had been applying to work on airlines since the 50s um, and earlier even, but they had not been being hired due to blatantly racist hiring policies until the late 1960s. 
Um, so all at once, what had been in the early 1960s, a job for exclusively young white women uh, became in the 1970s, in the, the end of the 70s, a job for a much more diverse crew of varied ages that was much more representative of the US. And you also talk about um, women's working rights in this period, again, a period of change. But I, I didn't immediately think that stewardesses would be in the middle of things, but it appeared they were with uh, activities around unions and things like that. They absolutely were. Um, it, it was really interesting to me to notice that, um, you know, part of part of the reason why they weren't welcomed with open arms uh, by all feminists was because they were um, enacting a, a very stereotyped um, vision of femininity that, that uh, as you mentioned, that was devised by men. Um, so, so feminists didn't really look at them and immediately see um, someone who, who they felt belonged in their ranks. And yet, in that very period of time, um, these women were uh, at the helm of lawsuits that were attacking the sexist hiring practices at the airlines that, that we mentioned before, um, young, beautiful, white, um, and unmarried, uh, and and uh, and those lawsuits, which at first in the early '60s they did not win, um, and later in in the decade and into the '70s they did win, uh, effectively dismantling those those hiring policies. Those lawsuits wound up setting the legal precedent on which um, decades of labor law would would depend as far as um, gendered uh, hiring practices go. So these women. They're, you know, they didn't necessarily look to the naked eye like feminist icons, and yet their desire to to live these independent lives, to keep flying into marriage, and beyond, to to keep working through their 30s, um, uh, and to keep making money and, and flying around the world, um, that that desire to work and to to be in the world uh, really did propel the feminist movement forward. So at that time, Pan Am truly did. Uh circle the world um, and you write about the places these stewardesses were able to visit the the finest hotels they were able to stay in as part of the stewardess experience um, and it, it does sound amazing right that that a girl from the midwest could within a couple of months be flying to africa and hong kong and hawaii and all of these places on an almost daily basis um, so was it one big trade-off for the stewardesses they can get to see the world but it's very very much on the company's terms um yeah to some level yes and and you know as you're naming places i just have to chime in and say that uh my gosh i would do anything to have been in beirut in the 60s and 70s it sounds incredible and on guam and and in hong kong these places that they they were um, able to visit were just incredible um on some level, yes, it was a trade-off. They, uh, in a way, put up with a certain degree of objectification for an absolutely unprecedented level of freedom uh, and access. But it's worth noting that on Pan Am, which was um, probably the least, uh, the the least blatant um, of the airlines, uh, Pan Am, their uniforms were always very conservative, um, fashionable but conservative, because they flew into places where the um, sexual revolution was not exactly, was not happening. Um, you know, a, a, a miniskirt would not read the same way in, um, in, say, New Delhi or Jakarta or um, or Tehran as it as it would in L.A. or Paris or New York. Um, so very few on Pan Am felt. Um, 
felt overtly objectified, especially when compared with other airlines like National or Southwest domestic American airlines that were, um, you know, really uh, running very uh, blatantly uh, objective uh, ad campaigns and, and putting women in uniforms that were blatantly um, objectifying them. Basically selling flights on sex appeal. Absolutely. On, 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 I think, I think it was Braniff that uh, had, it was Braniff that had the airstrip where women would get on the plane. Um, stewardesses would wear uh, many layers on the plane when they got on it and they would um, take off uh, layer after layer in flight until they were pretty scantily clad on the other end. On Southwest, they were wearing hot pants and serving love potions and love bites. And, you know, the list goes on. It's really, it does not age very well. I'll say that. Right. So during your research, what was the biggest surprise for you? Honestly, the war flights were uh, a huge surprise for me. I, I, I had never put two and two together that, um, you know, of course, uh, to get 500,000 American men into Vietnam, they, they had to travel across a huge ocean. And so it, it makes sense that they would contract with civilian airlines to get out there. Um, and again, it makes sense that those airlines would be staffed by um, civilian flight attendants and or stewardesses as, as they were then called um, but but the real degree of actual danger that the women were placed in was shocking to me um, they came under mortar fire uh, I talked to a woman who was stranded in Cameron Bay uh, because of a broken plane for an, an overnight and slept in the barracks with the men um, they I heard stories from women who hid out from rifle fire behind barricades at an air base and um, women who who dealt with um, drastically with men who were who were drastically um, disturbed with PTSD and, and tried to open the doors of the plane and jump out mid-flight rather than go back into combat after an R&R. &R. Um, the list goes on and th those a lot of those incidences were really um, shocking to me. So when they would have been flying out of Vietnam, the hold would have also have contained the bodies of soldiers. Would, would that be correct? Yes, it was correct. And and these these the women who flew these flights, they had not signed up to to um, to fly war flights. It certainly was not um, openly advertised when when the women were applying for the job. Um, it was just these were flights that were staffed by women um, in at the L.A. and San Francisco bases primarily. Um, so so it, it came as a degree of a surprise to most of the women, um, and they really rose to the occasion um, and this sense of gravity of what they were doing, um, you know, regardless of, of what their positions were on, on the war. I talked to women, women who were quite hawkish and women who were very, very active in the anti-war protest movement. So their, their perspectives on the war itself really ran the gamut, but they all really felt very strongly um, the 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 importance of offering um, a dignified experience to the men themselves who were on the planes um, because they, they were very aware that uh, in the same way that their perspectives on the war were really varied, um, that the men who were heading into war in an era of the draft also had incredibly varied um, desires to be there. Right. So Pan Am doesn't exist anymore, uh, hasn't for a, a good number of years. Um, the latest generation of travelers won't know it. Um, so what's the company's legacy? Why is it special? So it's, it's special for a couple of reasons. Um, on a technical or, or technological level, uh, Pan Am was an airline of firsts in the 1920s. It was the first American airline to operate permanent international flights, um, to use the radio to serve meals in the air. 
in the 30s, it was the first to operate scheduled transatlantic passenger service in the 40s to run a round-the-world flight to provide tourist class service outside of the U.S. The list goes on and on, and it involves um, it includes involvement with uh, the war efforts of the the whole 20th century, and um, it involves glamorous jet travel. Pan Am was the first American airline to to use a jet plane, and and um, and so you know that that's on some level it's because of the the technical firsts that the airline really burnished its image. On the other hand, it is. Um, it, it was an image that they burnished. Uh, the the glamour of the company was was constructed, and it was constructed in 360 degrees. Um, they had their stewardesses in uniforms by couturiers of the day. Um, they had their buildings and terminals designed by the best architects. Uh, they owned the intercontinental hotels, and so those um, hotels were also designed by incredibly glamorous um, designers and architects. And so, um, so the glamour itself was it was real, and it was it was um, it was it was operating on all fronts. So combine those two things: the the technological firsts and, and the glamour, and then you have a pretty iconic airline. And the other thing that I think really gives it sticking power uh, in the the um, cultural mindset is that that their women on Pan Am um, they really they were neither here nor there. They they were they didn't fit any any stereotype in a really elusive and interesting way. They're fascinating women who I think a lot of people are aware that these women were more than just, um, you know, as the replacement song goes, a waitress in the sky. Um, but but they don't exactly know why or, or what they did that was so remarkable. And that's kind of part of what my book was aiming to answer. So what killed Pan Am in the end? Was it just pure competition? Um, my father would, would point out that none of the trunk airlines from back then uh, are, are still in existence. So clearly, it was not just Pan Am that was killed by, um, you know, the, the movement from uh, a regulated uh, price structure to the open marketplace. Then that's something about that, that fee structure and, and the ability to compete for prices and go ever lower. Um, really, it's not it's not an easy business to to run. My research really um, led me to believe that uh, the 747 uh, was hard for the airline to come back from, and it made this huge investment in this enormous plane. Um, and when the plane hit the hit the tarmac, shall we say, um, it was it was the timing could not have been worse. It was in a moment of economic austerity, uh, and uh, and they really struggled to. The airline had bit off more than it could chew, and it was hard hard to recover from. Right. So air travel has changed so much in the last 25 years, all the security changes, um, I mean, even the changes in the last 12 months. But I, I'm just wondering, that group of Pan Am stewardesses that you spoke to, what do they think about air travel today? Did they express their opinions to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think they have. We all have the same gripes about air travel, right? The the cancelled flights and the um, the small seats and the lack of um, glamour when it comes to what we're drinking and eating in flight. It, it it it's not in many ways. It's not a very fun experience, um, especially when compared to to the past. And yet, um, I think you know they would say I think what I what I would say, which is that. Um, the the profession of flight attendant as we know it today um, has changed to better represent uh, America in in a way and, and that um, that you know the, these the job as we know it it may not appear glamorous today 
Um, and yet it, it, these people are first responders. Um, they're tasked with keeping us safe. They're usually incredibly well prepared and, and often very well read. Um, they're interesting people who are, um, who are, as the women of the jet age were, also just very curious about the world and, and have a really hard time sitting still. So, um, you know, the job, the job attracts a similar kind of person today as it did back then. And, uh, well, certainly for the airlines I experienced going back and forth to Europe from North America, I would say more diverse people. I mean, obviously there's male flight attendants, but there are flight attendants of all races. There are, and of all ages too. It's, it's, it's hard to really conceive of the homogeneity of, of the job as it existed in the 50s and early 1960s, that it was all, you know, exclusively young white women. Um, and, and now it, these, these jobs are, that they represent, um, you know, the, the places that the women and men are coming from, the, the countries that the airplanes depart from. They, they're much better, um, they're, they're much more equitable and much better workplaces for, I think, everyone. Do you think, um, well, I, I wonder if that image of the, the glamorous air hostess, air stewardess, has completely gone away. I think there might be a couple of airlines that still strongly put their stewardesses at the front and center of their marketing activities. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's worth noting that those, those airlines also have, have the pretty, the restrictive hiring policies in place, I think, that existed here um, uh, in, in the early days. So it's not without a cost. Yeah. Well, well, right now, it'd just be nice to get on a plane, but... Oh my gosh, you're telling me. What will it be like? It's so I funny. I, I've gotten a couple of, of questions in, in, in these interviews for, for this book. Um, a number of people have asked me about the glamour of air travel back then and now and, and, and these questions. It's really, I'm aware in a part of my brain that air travel right now is not a glamorous thing. And yet, please put me on a plane and I'll find it incredible. I can be in a tiniest seat. Just just give me a give me a window seat and a vista from the air and I will be happy. Yes, I'm wondering what documentation I will be carrying, how things will be spaced out, how early I will need to get to the airport. But yes, I I would very much like to jump on a plane back to Europe. For sure. Yeah. All right. So um, our last question, Julia, which we asked to everybody, but what book or books are you currently reading? Um, I am currently reading a book called Fierce Poise uh, by Alexander Nemirov. It's about uh, it's a biography of Helen Frankenthaler that comes out in a couple of weeks, I believe. Um, and I'm also I, I, I like to dip into um, uh, essays by Bruce Chatwin or Jeff Dyer or Martha Gellhorn um, and Mavis Gallant short stories. I tend to have um, a book of short stories uh, around me with some frequency just to, to dip into and, and, and exit. Right. I have a Bruce Chatwin biography by my bed that's been there for about nine months. It's very big. Is it the and Nicholas Shakespeare one? Yes, it is. My have husband's a huge fan. He says it's incredible. I can't wait to read it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to read it then. Yeah. <laughs> read it. Yeah. I'm going to throw in one last question because I've just thought of a good one. But one thing I always thought about plane travel 
is I can't sleep on that plane on the you know, on a flight back to Europe. So I read. So I take usually three books and I've got a good chance that I will get to the end of the second one by the end of that transatlantic flight. Do you agree that planes are a great, great place to read books? They're the best place to read books, but also for me to write. I never think better than when I'm in. I'm next to a window seat. I'm, I'm a window seat person. Um, I, for me, just any any ephemeral vista, and I love it. And I like window seats of planes, trains. Um, I just like staring at, at the landscape or at the clouds below me or anything that's changing. Um, and for me, I, I, I love working, writing, and thinking in transit. Right. And you've got room to use your keyboard? Barely. My arms are a little long for it, but it, it, it works. <laughs> all right. Well, let's hope soon we will all be on a plane to our wherever we need to go to uh, see our loved ones. Anyway, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, many thanks to Julia Cook for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, Julia, Julia Cook is the author of Come Fly the World, the jet age story of the women of Pan Am. Uh, thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an eight books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.